Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. What an end to the 2021 football season, huh, people? I guess now I can officially say Happy New Year. Now that football season is officially over, it is 2022. And so, you can kick off 2022 by heading over to Bet Online today to continue betting on basketball, hockey, some MMA, and the big dance being right around the corner. Use the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up today. Bet online, where the game starts. Good afternoon or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast Live. On the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is February 17th, 2022, according to my count, but it may not be that according to your count. Doesn't matter, though, because we appreciate you, however and whenever you may be stopping in. We have got a fantastic show here today with our friend Juju Talk Sports from the Slump Buster podcast, of which I co-host with Juju every single week on the Slump Buster YouTube channel, which you can check out with the link in this episode. And you should check us out always because Juju may disappear for weeks at a time here on this podcast, but you can always catch me and Juju doing podcasts together over on the Slump Buster. It is fun content for me and that's a ringing endorsement that I could think of off the top of my head is it's fun for me so you guys might enjoy it as well it seems to be the crux here is finding the blend of things I like and things other people like which today is a perfect segue because what I want to talk about here today is something that I find very interesting but other people may not find as interesting But we still have these conversations every now and then when such a story presents itself. And there's only one story that we can be talking about here today on Thursday, February 17th, because it's the story that broke. And I felt like didn't get a ton of coverage. Now, I wasn't watching a lot of ESPN or Bleacher Report or like daily programming yet. I guess this would be a story for more so Thursday's daily programming, which is what we have today. So I assume a lot of the conversations will come up today. It is about Jerry Jones, Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys at a time where we're having conversations about white power structures in America, in a corporation like the NFL, and you could argue Jerry Jones is the most powerful man in all of the NFL. Jerry Jones is America's team franchise. Jerry Jones is the owner who has kind of been indoctrinated the longest here, even in an NFL where the oldest or I'm sorry, the average length of ownership is 38 years. Not sure people knew that. 38 years is the average length of NFL ownership for, 
you know, someone who buys a team, inherits a team, dies and passes it on to their son or daughter in some cases, but overwhelmingly their sons, you see 38 years is the average length of ownership for an NFL team. So of course these white power structures in the NFL remain in place, even as you try and make changes on the periphery, like incentivizing draft picks for hiring black general manager candidates and black head coaching candidates as you try desperately to improve your record on diversity, but owners want to hire people that uphold and maintain the white power structure. And so you kind of have to trick white people into being more diverse, sometimes by bribing them. It's a very complicated situation here. So that's the backstory of everything we were talking about the week before. And Daniel Snyder is being investigated by Congress and very quietly dropped at 11 o'clock on the night of the Super Bowl. Like, just let's hide this news dump as much as we can. Stephen Ross is being investigated by the NFL, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, over his Brian Flores paying $100,000 to lose games, which, by the way, cheap as hell for $100,000 to, to destroy Brian Flores' reputation in the sport and never coach again. $100,000, pretty cheap. I don't think I'd be able to be bought out at $100,000 a loss. Anyways, Stephen Ross being investigated by the NFL. We've talked... I think seven, eight, nine, ten times on the podcast about the Washington racial slurs, Dan Snyder, um, and the toxic workplace that not only he oversaw but also contributed to with the stories from the Washington Post about him uh, passing on female cheerleaders as escorts to season ticket holders, a 2011 sexual harassment and sexual assault uh, charge that ended up being settled that only came to light through the investigation of his team, the seven... 150,000 emails through the Washington organization that were sifted through in the independent, in air quotes, investigation that we're not going to get to see except for the fact that it reveals John Gruden is a racist and a bigot who ends up getting fired in the store, in the investigation of Dan Snyder. Two NFL, and we can go back to 2018 also, of Jerry Richardson quietly being asked to sell his team because of a lot of Me Too stuff that went on with Jerry Richardson that would have been a scandal of Matt Lauer type of proportions had the NFL not made it go away quietly. So problematic owners in the NFL do not have to answer to anyone. And this is the system that billions and billions of dollars can create within a corporation is you don't have to conform or mold to anyone because you are the power structure and you don't have any system of accountability. You've designed a system specifically that has no measure of accountability. And now we are learning through reporting some of the dirty underbellies of the NFL. Not that it wasn't perfectly clear before, but this Cowboys story is something that is very, very much, now we can have expressly described in detail with Don Van Nata Jr., who's one of the best reporters in sports. He um, was with Seth Wickersham, did the Tom Brady reporting. He was the person who, uh, not just with Deflategate, but also that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick had rifts with each other. He's a person who's done investigative journalism on television, um, whether it be talking about things like The Decision and interviewing Jim Gray and LeBron James. Very good sports reporter uncovers this story from the Dallas Cowboys. That is always some of the things we associate with the concept of America's team, or at least in the context of America's team, white America's team, because Jerry Jones 
is very much politically conservative, and Jerry Jones is what we might describe as quote-unquote old school as a way to brush off the problematic behavior of Jerry Jones. So here's the story of the Dallas Cowboys that is important to put out there because as much as we talk about the idea of America's team and the NFL having issues when it comes to um, diversity and problematic workplaces, it's important to talk about what comes with white power structures, which the NFL invariably has. In 101 years of the NFL, they have had two non-white owners and zero female owners who are not the children of white men who had previously purchased NFL teams. It is 108 white men and daughters of white men and Shad Khan and the owner of the Bills are the only non-white owners in the history of the NFL. So when we're talking about a white power structure that also has, you know, as of last year, 92%, 93% white executives in positions of power, that number slowly declining thanks to this recent hiring cycle where we now have seven black general managers and president equivalents and three non-white head coaches in the NFL, uh, four if you want to count um, Lovey Smith being the shadow coach of the Houston Texans, um, you can point to the white power structure in the NFL the same way you can point to it in all sorts of corporations, which now finally is the long way of bringing me to this Dallas Cowboys story. The Dallas Cowboys paid a confidential settlement of $2.4 million after four members of their iconic cheerleading squad accused a senior team executive of voyeurism in their locker room as they undressed during a 2015 event at AT AT&T Stadium, according to the documents obtained by ESPN and people with knowledge of the situation. Each of the women received $399,523.27 after the incident. One of the cheerleaders alleged that she clearly saw Richard Darapol, the Cowboys' longtime senior vice president for public relations and communications, standing behind a partial wall in their locker room with his iPhone extended towards them while they were changing their clothes, according to several people with knowledge of the events and letters sent by attorneys for the cheerleaders to the team. Darumple gained access to the back door of the cheerleaders' locker room by using a security keycard. Darumple was also accused by a lifelong Cowboys fan of taking, quote, upskirt photos of Charlotte Jones Anderson, a team senior vice president and daughter of team owner Jerry Jones, in the Cowboys' war room during the 2015 draft, according to documents obtained by ESPN and interviews. The fans signed a document alleging that he was watching a live stream of the war room on the team's website when he said he saw the alleged incident. Darumpel, who did not respond to interview requests by ESPN, told team officials he entered the cheerleaders' locker room not knowing the women were there and left right away, a team source said. His account was contradicted by the way multiple sources described the alleged incident to ESPN. On Monday night, Darumpel issued a statement calling both allegations false. Quote, people who know me, co-workers, the media, the colleagues, know who I am and what I'm about, Darumpel said in his statement. I understand the very serious nature of these claims. Do not take them lightly. The accusations are, however, false. One was accidental. The other simply did not happen. Uh, end quote. A Cowboys representative said the team thoroughly investigated both the alleged incidents and found no wrongdoing by Darumpel and no evidence that he took photos or videos of the women. The team does not dispute Darumpel used his security key card to access and enter the cheerleader's locker room while the women were changing clothes. 
Even so, the team issued Darumple a formal written warning in October 2015, a person familiar with the matter told ESPN. A team source declined to provide a copy of the warning and described what it contained, citing privacy concerns. The team also declined to detail information, including time-stamped data from surveillance cameras and security key cards that would show precisely when Darumple entered and left the dressing room. Darumpel continued working for the Cowboys in his same role for nearly six years after the settlement. On February 2nd, he told the Dallas Morning News of his immediate retirement after 32 years as Jerry Jones' chief spokesman and confidant. While Darumpel thanked the team and the Jones family, no one on behalf of the team acknowledged his years of service, and his retirement was not mentioned on the team's website. His retirement came several weeks after ESPN began in interviewing people about his alleged incidents and days after ESPN contacted attorneys involved in his settlement. In his statement, Darumple said the allegations had nothing to do with his retirement from a long and fulfilling career. A signed copy of the May 2016 settlement agreement obtained by ESPN includes a non-disclosure agreement in which four women, three of their spouses are Cowboys officials, Oh, three of their spouses and Cowboys officials agreed never to speak publicly about the allegations. ESPN knows the identity of the four cheerleaders, but does not typically reveal the names of people who have reported allegations of sexual misconduct. The women either declined to comment or did not respond to inquiries. A former cheerleader familiar with the dressing room incident said it became known among a few fellow cheerleaders. Quote, it hurt my heart because I know how much it affected the people who were involved. It was a very, shut the book, don't talk about it, this person is going to stay in his position. They just made it go away. Darumpel had a long personal history with the Cowboys and Jerry Jones and was seen by the owner as a member of the extended Jones family. In Dallas, he was the media gatekeeper and the team's high-profile fixer, often responsible for clarifying the owner's public statements. In one, he once ordered by receiver Des Bryant in a clouded rocker, locker room to fix this shit, Rich, after Bryant got angry with a reporter. In 2015 and 2016, a team source said Darumple lobbied football writers to elect Jerry Jones to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. On Wednesday, September 2nd, 2015, Cowboys held their annual luncheon at AT&T Stadium, the official start of the regular season that helped raise money for charity. Almost 2,000 people attended. After waving the pom-poms besides a lectern where several people delivered speeches, the cheerleaders returned to the locker room shortly after noon to change into their clothes before the luncheon. At least two security guards usually stand outside the dressing room, but on this day, only one security guard was present. Inside the back door that was left unguarded was a small nook separated from the dressing room by a partial wall. The source said the only way to unlock this door is with a security key card that Darumple, along with other employees, possessed. The women heard the door leading to the nook area open. Source said, we're in here, the women shouted, as they assumed it was a security guard who immediately left, according to account from multiple sources and relayed in a letter from the cheerleader's attorney, to the team. Uh, in the story, there's also a diagram of the Cowboys cheerleaders locker room as well. Several minutes later, one of the cheerleaders noticed a man's hand and a black cell phone pointed in their direction, according to several sources. At the time, the women were going from fully clothed to completely unclothed, a cheerleader later told the Cowboys human resources official and team general counsel, Jason Cohen. 
The cheerleader who saw the cell phone was certain the man was lurking and taking photos or video of them. The woman ran towards him shouting, hey, what are you doing? The cheerleader, a veteran of several years on the team, immediately recognized Darrumple, who she said dashed away according to the letter. The other women did not see the man according to the letter. The cheerleaders immediately reported what happened to a security guard. Three people said the security guard wanted to report the incident to the Arlington Police Department. If the cheerleaders' allegations were substantiated, under Texas law, it could be a misdemeanor to secretly observe someone without their consent and a felony to take a photo or video of, quote, an intimate area of another person without their consent. The sources said the cheerleaders wanted to have it, quote, properly investigated, but the police were not called. This chaos delayed the four cheerleaders' arrival to the luncheon by nearly 30 minutes. When they arrived, Keeley Finglass, the cheerleaders' director, was sitting at a round table with other people, including several team sponsors. What took so long, she asked of the women, the former cheerleader said. The cheerleaders couldn't answer the question truthfully in that setting and instead simply said they had been delayed. After the luncheon, the cheerleaders huddled with Finglass, who suggested that the women should report the incident to the Cowboys' Human Resources Department. Source added, all four cheerleaders wanted Darumple punished. Wilkinson said the Cowboys' interview start, inter investigation started later that day. Here's how he laid it out. Human Resources officials took statements by phone from the cheerleaders, the security guard, and two other employees who might have been witnesses. Cohen, a general counsel, confiscated Darumple's work-issued iPhone and obtained passwords for his phone and iCloud accounts. Cohen also conducted the first of multiple interviews with Darumple, who acknowledged using his security key card to enter what he thought was an empty locker room. He also denies using his phone to collect images of the women. During the security guard's interview, he did not tell team officials he had wanted to call police. Security guard did not respond to multiple interview requests. In the days that followed, Cohen sent Darumple a letter ordering him to preserve any evidence related to the allegation. It took eight days after the incident for team officials to meet with the women in person. The cheerleaders met individually with the chief of HR and Cohen in a conference room at Valley Ranch, then the team's headquarters. The source insisted that those meetings were the first time team officials interviewed the women that hadn't had any discussions on September 2nd were perfunctory. At those Valley Ranch meetings, the team officials each told the women that they had invest interviewed Darumple, who insisted that he had entered their locker room dressing only to use the bathroom and did not expect to find them there. A source said the women were incredulous for two reasons. One cheerleader said she clearly saw Darumple with the cell phone sticking out beyond a wall pointed at them, and the cheerleaders noted that there was a bathroom across the hall from their dressing room. In notes from one of the HR meetings obtained by ESPN, Cohen told a cheerleader that the team had searched Darumple's iPhone and hired forensic firms to ensure no images had been deleted. A cheerleader asked Cohen whether the team looked into any personal phones Darumple might have had. Cohen responded that Darumple insisted he had only the phone he turned over to the team. A team source said Darumple told the team he did not own a personal phone. This, to me, is a grievous offense, the woman said, according to the notes. Darumple understands this was the close to being fired and still will be fired if anything remotely like this comes to light. At no point did he deny anything up until the video part. Could he have lied to me? Of course, Cohen told the cheerleader. But I said to him point blank, is this the phone you had yesterday? And he said yes. The HR chief, the notes said, told the women the team examined the phone thoroughly. No evidence of any videos or anything sent out. Team officials assured that the de that 
they were talking taking the allegation seriously this is a huge deal the hr chief said and later we care about you guys we don't want you to feel awkward at work hr also offered the women resources including professional resources according to the notes and cohen offered to connect them with a friend who is an attorney The cheerleaders were instructed by their bosses not to go public and not to tell their teammates what had happened. Frustrated and angry, the women hired W. Kelly Pulls, a Fort Worth attorney, later that month to represent them in a lawsuit against the Cowboys. The cheerleaders, quote, were upset and felt certain the team wasn't going to do anything about it. They were told to just keep cheering and saw Darumple often at games and events. Pulls sent certified letters to top Cowboys executives, including Jerry Jones, demanding all evidence pre- be preserved, including all data, data on Darumple's cell phones, images from security cameras, and records from Darumple's security key card that would show all the times he had gained access to the cheerleader's locked dressing room. At the same time, the cheerleaders and attorneys began searching for other evidence of alleged misconduct by Darumple. One of them discovered a curious post on a Facebook page by a Shreveport, Louisiana school teacher, lifelong Cowboys fan named Randy Horton. He posted on a TV station's page he'd seen something strange while watching the live video feed from the Cowboys draft war room on April 30th, 2015. Horton also wrote that Charlotte Jones directly on Facebook, in case you haven't been made aware, that guy Rich Darumple, who was sitting in the back corner of the war room, on several occasions reached over and took upskirt pictures with his phone during the live stream. My wife and I watched in amazement. It happened when you guys stood up celebrating when you learned that you would be able to pick the Byron Jones kid. I believe Carolina was on the clock at the time. Go check it out. A team source said Charlotte Jones did not see Horton's post. Horton told ESPN he saw Darumple hold his phone under Charlotte Jones's skirt and several times appear to snap photos. Quote, I'll never forget what I saw, Horton said. The first time he reached from a sitting position behind her and she's standing with her back to him and did it once. He looked at the screen, touched the screen, and then did it again. The second time, he's sitting in a chair at the corner of the table on the left and he held his phone beneath the corner of the table with the camera side facing up where she was standing and did it again. Quote, I have no doubt in my mind of what he was doing. It was obvious. There is more details in the story, but these are the important parts here. And what I wanted to touch on here from this story, which obviously was 15 minutes long, this is how white power structures get upheld and maintained. This is Jerry Jones's right-hand person, or right-hand man, for 30-plus years. This is a fixer within the organization, an extremely powerful person, enabled and protected, because the Dallas Cowboys valued his ability and, and his connection to Jerry Jones and the personal relationship more than the allegations against him, which, according to the article, could pass as criminal conduct. And this is how the same white power structures get maintained, how toxic workplaces emerge in Dallas, the Los Angeles Clippers, um, with the Washington football team, of course. You could go down to LSU in college football. You could point to the stories that we've talked about in the past about sexual harassment and abuse at USC and Michigan and Michigan State and also LSU again and Baylor. You can point and USA Gymnastics. You can go down the list of how people are enabled by white power structures because maintaining and upholding the power is more important than rocking the boat. Jerry Jones is the model franchise of the NFL, 
And it's not a one-time thing where this emerges. We've seen Jerry Richardson sell his team with the Panthers for similar conduct. A $10 million fine levied against the Washington football team in an investigation into their organization. And Jerry Jones overseeing this situation and settling out quietly to make it all go away with this Darumple guy and the cheerleaders. And so this is where white power structures get enabled, and it's great that reporting like this brings this story to light. And I don't want to be the person who says, like, the obvious thing on this one. It's why it's important to talk about the detailed reporting, because when we say, of course the NFL is unsafe for women to work in because it is men only in positions of power, including as team executives, no women in positions of power. Ownership, the only women in positions of power are the children of white men who originally bought the teams. This is how this ends up getting perpetuated. And in the Washington football team example, like we talked about in the Washington Post, people who are perpetuators of this would just blatantly say, this is bro culture. This is a male working environment and you either deal with it or you go somewhere else. And that is the voice of someone who knows that they are protected in this position of power. And the Cowboys were not naive to this situation. As the story talked about, uh, our buddy, uh, I forgot his name now, Richard. <laughs> um, actually, would it be funnier to call him Dick? Uh, Dick ended up retiring quietly with no mention of it once they they started investigating the story. So the Cowboys knew what they could and could not get away with. They knew that this was a really big scandal and did everything they could to keep it from coming to light. And the the again the the lawsuit ends up not making national headlines because it ends up getting settled before it goes out to court. But this is how you buy silence, is that everyone can be bought, and if the Cowboys have infinite resources, you can buy the silence so that we only find out about it six years later, and our buddy, Rich, Dick, only only retires because Don Van Natta and journalism brings this story to light. And so, of course, it is unsafe for women to work in a male-dominated environment, especially a white male-dominated environment, because there's an extra. this is an extra sense of entitlement that goes along with this. There is a real issue that the NFL does not want to come to light. More than they want it to change, they don't want it to come to light, because Jerry Jones wants to protect the person who's been working with him for 30 years as his right-hand man and works to help him get into the Hall of Fame. This is a person who Jerry Jones values as an employee and values as a friend and is willing to protect them over people who are victims in a non-victimless crime. This is a very much a crime with real lives being impacted and potentially criminal conduct existing within the Cowboys organization that is glossed over because you got to protect the white power structure. And these are the things that we were talking about with Brian Flores that we'll continue talking about with our friend Juju Talk Sports from the Slump Buster podcast, which you can check out, of course, on YouTube and, well, right here. There's no way to not awkwardly transition on this one. What's better than having peace of mind? Nothing. And that's what NordVPN is here for, to give you peace of mind while you're online and protect you from all of the threats that you face on the internet. NordVPN is available on all of your computers and devices. No matter the operating system, NordVPN has got you. 
You can get your exclusive NordVPN deal today by going to nordvpn.com slash believe. Use the link in the description to this episode as well. And use the code believe. B-L-E-A-V. You can pick up 70% off, 70% off your NordVPN plan, and you get an additional month for free. It's also 100% risk-free for 30 days when you sign up. That's nordvpn.com slash believe. <laughs> All right, I gotta, I gotta collect myself real quick. You gotta on collect that. yourself. You gotta collect yourself coming off that. Again, it's podcast mode. I wasn't prepared for you to say nothing and then just hit record after I say having no shame to just pee and shit in public. Yeah, we had to come into this off a natural starting point, especially because there's gonna be some content in here that's such a Debbie Downer note. It's nice to at least start off. Yeah, with laugh. We broke character before it even started. We, we broke kayfabe here. We took off the wrestling mask. Yeah, ever so slightly. It's like that time that they did the live action show on ABC and Jamie Foxx started laughing partway through. Yeah, uh, it's like that. I broke the fourth wall partway through. Well, obviously, some of the podcasts and some of the reactions we do that do the best are ones that have honest, genuine, emotional responses. As I learned, obviously, this past weekend, reacting to my Niners, blowing it. And obviously, YouTube viewers from all around the country coming in to feast on my tears. It's the best way to grow on YouTube is to put all of your tears and when you can't put your own tears traffic in other people's tears always post reactions of people crying it, it is the best way to traffic in success on social media it's almost built into the algorithm like i can't prove that it's built into the algorithm but i know it's there i know it's part of that math equation that brings us to whatever the recommended video is i was actually watching the social dilemma for the first time a couple nights ago just in my binge watching kind of experience just to kind of figure out how social media works and the algorithms. Mm -hmm. I didn't get as crazy invested as some people did after that movie initially came out. Like, I thought it was okay. I thought it was a decent documentary. I thought how they blended the movie cinematic storytelling they had there with the actual documentary elements was a little bit more unique. Definitely, they know what they're doing. They they had the recommend this Niners fans tears. If it was more of an instant reaction, as you said in your video, I was thinking we probably could have got some Mahomey tears off of that one. It's a debate over who no. their game worse. You will not put my tears out here. I will not put my tears on display because I'm not that invested as a fan. Also, as someone who doesn't use social media very much, except for, you know, creating original content every now and then, uh, The Social Dilemma, highly recommend for anyone who has not seen it yet. It's a very good documentary. Yeah, it's worth a watch. It's worth a Google at the very least. It's worth a Google. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I see what you did there. But as far as the, these games, these title games, uh, the big debate was uh, over who blew their game worse. I think for my money, and this is not just bias as an Irish fan, I think it's the Chiefs. You go into a game as a oh, touchdown yeah. favorite, you're up 21 to three, you score touchdowns on the first three possessions. You should just walk away easily with that victory, especially when you have the greatest quarterback to ever pick up a football on your team. Oh, no question. No, it's the Chiefs. There's there's no way the Chiefs, even if the Chiefs had Jimmy Garoppolo at quarterback and the, the 49ers 
Orange had Patrick Mahomes at quarterback and the exact same results happened, it still would have been the Chiefs because that was an all-timer of a collapse. Uh, it's the worst collapse in the NFL since Aaron Rodgers' collapse a week ago. Uh, that's kind of how that one works out sometimes. There just happened to be two of those in the same playoff. There was almost three of them. The Rams almost did it with the Bucks also. So there was almost three of them in the same playoffs when you know maybe we get one every playoffs. I don't think we had one like that last year, but we did have in all the controversy of the Saints pass interference call. We forget to talk about the Saints blew like an 18 point lead in that game. Oh, the, the Texans blew a 24-0 lead against the Chiefs two years ago, and they've gone <laughs> eight and 25 since. I forgot about that one. When you really think about horrible comeback losses, that one has to be up, up there. I know it was very early on in the game, but it's such a huge lead to get outscored by 50 the rest of the way. It only took three quarters too. It was 24-0 in the second quarter. Texans in the lead. They were going to play the Titans in the AFC Championship at home and then play the Niners in the Super Bowl. Like there was a non-zero chance the Texans were going to win the Super Bowl that year. And they were down 28-24 at halftime. 24-20 in the second quarter. They were down 28-24 at halftime. I want to do like a six-part documentary on this Houston Texans team over the last two years. Every year on the podcast, we celebrate the anniversary of the Houston Texans blowing a 24-0 lead to the Chiefs. So anytime it gets mentioned, I need to talk about how amazing it is that since that moment, they've gone 8-25, and gone through four different head coaches, and have only Davis Mills and Rex Burkhead to show for all of their losing because they traded all their draft picks to the Dolphins. They gave away DeAndre Hopkins and J.J. Watts, so they gave the Cardinals their best run of football in the last 10 years. And whoever gets Deshaun Watson is going to have the next 10 years of a franchise quarterback. So they not only dismantled their team in like a year, they also funded three different franchises' most successful runs of the last 10 years, all by just being completely inept and having a team pastor being the owner running the entire franchise. Well, we did joke about this off-air in the past that we believe the Houston Texans are really just a shadow organization, a shadow front for other organizations to pick apart. Basically, they are mm-hmm. the farm system to every other team. As you mentioned, all those stars leaving to aid other franchises that are hoping to pursue titles. If you're Bill O'Brien, that's a crazy fall from grace to be involved in, to go from a 24-0 lead to being fired by week four of the following year. I know Bill Brad was never the most job secure guy in the world toward the end, but this is going to lead into our conversation about Brian Flores at some point, which is not only was Bill O'Brien a white dude as a coach in the NFL, he was super successful as a head coach. He won four division titles in six years, some of them with Brian Hoyer as his quarterback, and still nobody wants to touch him because of how he burned every good grace that he had with the way that ended in Houston. He burned every good grace in the NFL. Again, we laughed at the Jaguars for being like, remember they were up 12 points on the Patriots in the fourth quarter about to go to the Super Bowl. Three years later, they had the number one pick in the draft. It took Houston six months to do what the Jaguars did in three years. It took them six months to dismantle their entire franchise after that. Like I said, I want to do just a six, eight part documentary on how a team pastor literally took over control of the organization, praying with the owner. All of a sudden, the owner gives him control of his entire team and just dismantles everything that almost won a Super Bowl two 
years ago. And that's why, and we've had this conversation, you mentioned the Brian Flores stuff. It makes me just wonder and think bad organizations are just going to bad organizations sometime. And sometimes assuming racism, which is a big card that's been thrown out here in the last couple of days, can also just as easily be explained with incompetence. Like the example of Stephen Ross paying Brian Flores to lose games, that sounds like the ultimate level of incompetence by an owner that I've ever heard. And it takes away from the spirit of the game. I've heard arguments that Stephen Ross on that basis alone should have his team taken away from them. And we're talking about what would install actual change in this regard. I think gain out some of these owners who are just bad at owning organizations would make a big difference. Whether they're racist or incompetent, at least having rules in place that could filter out the swamp, as they say, right, would go a long way. Like there was one rule that was suggested a few years ago for NBA tanking that I really liked. I know it would never happen, but the idea that if your team hadn't made the playoffs in such and such years, then you enter a probationary period. And if you still (laughs) suck within that probationary period, then you have to forfeit the rights to your franchise. Again, no, it will never happen, but something like that would go a long way in most of these sporting organizations. There's an easy solution to this and it's relegation. You know, European soccer does it all the time. It's a really easy solution to this problem. The thing is, American sports leagues have crafted a system where there, there is no accountability for being a terrible owner. One, you have all the protections in the world because the money is always going to come in regardless of what you do. I saw yesterday, after everything that happened with the Washington football team, top three highest selling jerseys on fanatics.com, new Washington commanders jerseys. It's appalling. Like no matter what, people are not going to hold their financials. They're not going to not continue investing time, money, and resources into these sports leagues. Therefore, there's no accountability to change there. To the point of Stephen Ross and owners getting kicked out, I wish there was more accountability in sports. I think the practical way that this is going to play out is having these owners die 20, 30 years from now. Like Stephen Ross is in his 80s. I can say pretty confidently the owner of the Houston Texans probably racist considering he's great friends with Mitch McConnell. I think pretty safe to say might be a little racist, but his dad's also the one who had the inmates running the asylum comment a few years ago and he died and now his son takes over. So there's only so much there can be in this situation. I just wish there was more accountability for Dan Snyder. Uh, Stephen Ross is a different case because it's not necessarily toxic workplace or alleged racism or in the case of Dan Snyder, also a sexual assault that was settled 10 years ago that has not really come to the light of day. His great crime in this one seems to be more against the rules of the NFL and the tanking game of if he is paying people to lose games, it looks really bad on the league. And so that one could have implications with the gambling money that the NFL is beginning to take and things like that. It's not going to lead to him getting the boot. I don't think even $100,000 per loss, unless we have more details come to light, it's not going to be enough to get him the boot because the bar is just so high to kick out an owner. There's only been two in the history, or three. Jerry Richardson kind of quietly sold his team with all the Me Too stuff, but Jerry Richardson and Donald Sterling, and then that woman who used to own the, I think the Cincinnati Reds in the late 50s or 60s, who was literally a Nazi. So you have to be literally a Nazi, Donald Sterling or Jerry Richardson. That's the bar that we're talking about. And I don't think Stephen Ross is going to meet that bar. Well, I would say as much as we kind of went back and forth with it, I think we both found common ground on the basis of a lawsuit taking place because the bare minimum with a lawsuit is it is going to bring some stuff to light. We're going to see email exchanges. We're going to see private text exchanges. 
changes, to figure out true hiring practices, to figure out true behind the scenes stuff that's happening. And you might get owners on the stand also having to testify under oath. Having to testify under oath. So we're going to figure out some stuff and we're going to actually separate the wheat from the chaff here and what is actually racism, what is incompetence, what is, I don't know, Stephen Ross being a poor owner, the Dolphins sucking and the Lions also sucking worse. You know, we'll figure out that kind of stuff with this lawsuit because it's going to go in depth more than we could ever really go in depth. Although I I do kind of like wonder, do we ever really know what's in someone's psyche? I think that in this case, it's not important to the context of what we're talking about because this is not necessarily covert racism. This is structural and institutional racism that we're talking about. This is white power being in a place with not just 95% of the owners of professional football teams being white. 101 year history of the NFL, there've only been two non-white owners. And the only female owners in the NFL are the widows and spouses of men who had originally purchased the teams. And so only in the last eight years do you have Shad Khan purchasing the Jaguars, but even he himself has a lot of the white billionaire mindset behind him in the way that he runs his team and the Pagulias in Buffalo who have donated millions of dollars to the Trump campaign. So you kind of have this back and forth between white billionaires and ultimately hiring white men as general managers and presidents of teams. I believe it's over 90% now, even though that's improved because we now have, I believe, five non-white general managers, which is an improvement over what it was 10 years ago. Um, And then, of course, we only have two non-white male head coaches. And so that's just white power as a structure that exists in pretty much every major corporation in America. It's just the NFL is an important microcosm for this because the NFL, it's very public and out in front because we can see who the leaders are of NFL teams. We know, even if we don't know all the general managers, we relatively know a good portion of the general managers. We can name most of the coaches we can name a good portion of the owners. This exists all throughout corporate America. And so this is just a microcosm for helping us better understand how structural racism ends up being perpetuated across generations when white straight men hire a lot of white straight men in positions of power. But if it's not intentional, is there ever really a way to make a rule to help aid? I know the Rooney rule is certainly a well-intentioned rule, and I know it does give the opportunity for people to interview, but one of the big arguments coming up in this Brian Flores issue is that his interview was ultimately a sham. And I think in certain ways, the Rooney rule does kind of lead to that because I mentioned this metaphor. If I walk into a restaurant, I already know what I'm going to get. Then reading off the specials doesn't really do anything to persuade me one way or the other. If I want the lasagna, I don't care how good the rigatoni is. Like, you know, I was all in on Harbaugh. If I owned an NFL team, Harbaugh might be my first and only interview. And I would probably be felt comfortable in hiring Jim Harbaugh as my number one. Do I really need to interview more people waste their time, waste my time, because I know Harbaugh's my guy. With Jim Harbaugh, I think no, because he has the track record specifically. In Jim Harbaugh's case, I think that's exactly true, is that I think everyone was saying when Brian Flores got fired and there were connections to Jim Harbaugh, and by the way, Jim Harbaugh was headed to Miami. Like, it's very clear he, until all of this broke, Jim Harbaugh was going to head to Miami. This was a well-orchestrated plot to get him to the Dolphins. And Jim Harbaugh is a guy that you would say, yeah, you would you know exactly who you're going to hire because Jim Harbaugh is in high demand. Where this gets wishy-washy is Nick Sirianni, Kevin O'Connell, who's going to be the coach of the Minnesota Vikings after the Super Bowl, Matt Eberflus. Uh, there's been now multiple Frank Reich guys being hired in that situation. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett with the Broncos. Those are guys that were not highly desirable head coaches. 
those are just coaches that ended up getting hired because that's who they ended up deciding was most qualified for the job. And I know this is audio medium. I put most qualified in air quotes because this is a whole conversation about whether this is actually a meritocracy or not, as Eric Bieniemy is not going to get another head coaching job for four cycles. And Byron Leftwich might not get a coaching job now. I mean, I don't know what's real and what's not there with Byron Leftwich, but it looked like he had the Jaguars job. And then he ended up saying that it was either bulky or him which is a weird thing there, but it also could be a smear it. campaign there. <laughs> I yeah. get it. Harbaugh and Balky have definitely butted heads in the past. And it's what well, it came down to a Balky versus Harbaugh discussion when it was for the Niners, who was going to continue on there. So Leftwich put his foot in the ground over Balky. I could understand it. But I don't know what's true and what's not there. Because again, the Dolphins fired Brian Flores. They were getting crushed for the decision and they released a smear campaign of Brian Flores, calling him angry black guy, which has all kinds of racial connotations behind it. So, so I don't know what's real and what's not in that situation. Did they call him angry black guy? All the reports that were I, coming out. I think out it's important to be Dolphins. like fair here. Like, did they actually call him angry black guy? I mean, not in their press release, but in the stories that were clearly being leaked from Dolphins camp, they were talking about how Brian Flores was difficult to work with, didn't get along with his coordinators, ended up being hostile to people, uh, yelled at people. And th- but these can are he all be hostile and it not be related to his race. Uh, the lawsuit is arguing that this case, they are using phrases that are specifically mentioned towards black coaches, but you don't hear the same things as often around white coaches. And this is about how people have stereotypes typed black coaches for years, that the idea of black coaches being players coaches and overwhelmingly being on the defense, while white coaches, usually on the offensive side of the ball, are regarded as offensive geniuses or intellectuals and and all of this that's code words for a lot of the racial undertones that come from structural racism. And so, I mean, we say code words here, but at the same time, you could laugh at the fact that the Bengals hired Zach Taylor and you could laugh at the fact that all these Sean McVay coaches got hired, but you look at the final four in the NFC, it was Matt LaFleur, Kyle Shanahan, and Sean McVay. There's some basis to hire these guys. Like Mike McDaniels, I saw an article from Deadspin questioning, oh, look, another straight white guy gets hired by the Dolphins. Well, Mike McDaniels, first off, is biracial, but secondly, working under Kyle Shanahan for a multitude of years, if he coaches like LaFleur, if he coaches like McVay, then you're justified in that. I think you're only non-justified if you're wrong, which unfortunately, we won't know if you're wrong until these guys actually coach. So this is a whole nother conversation about how these people get their jobs in the first place, because the NFL is not open to everyone the same way. All of these sports leagues are not open to everyone. If you want to be a coach or you want to be a manager because you can't get the entry level positions, there's only so many of them. And because they're in such high demand, they often go to people who have connections already in the industry, whether it's Sean McVay, whose dad used to be a coach, Nathaniel Hackett, whose dad used to be a coach, Kyle Shanahan, obviously, we know that situation there. Or Arthur Smith, for example. These are just ones I can list off the top of my head. But Arthur Smith, his dad is literally the owner of FedEx and part owner of the Washington football team, who his first job was working as an offensive analyst for Ole Miss, which is the school that his dad gives a lot of money to and has a bunch of buildings named after. So this is all a conversation about when white power has the power within the NFL, they also allow people to to come into the sport. And this is a whole nother conversation about nepotism that has nothing to do with Brian Flores. The same thing is now actually happening in the NBA where black nepotism is now becoming a thing because the NBA was ahead of the NFL slightly on this. The NBA now has a generation of Steven Silas's and Bickerstaff's who are sons of former coaches as well. And this is a whole conversation about who 
gets in the door in the first place is that when white people are in positions of power, they often let white people, sometimes their sons, sometimes their nephews, some sort of connection to these people often get in the door in the first place because it's a closed off industry. And the part with successful white coaches is that if you hire a successful white coach, good for you. You hired the right candidate. The thing is, there's a whole pool of people who are not going to be allowed to even have a chance to pursue their career because they didn't get the entry level position that Kyle Shanahan got and then could work 15 years to ultimately become a head coach. In football, I believe there have only been about 18 black head coaches in the last 40 years. Somewhere like half of them are former NFL players as well. I think there are very few exceptions. And Brian Flores was one of the exceptions of NFL coach who did not play in the NFL. In Major League Baseball, actually, Major League Baseball has never had a single black manager who did not also play Major League Baseball. And there are all kinds of white guys you can name who never played the sport, who end up getting head coaching jobs. Kyle Shanahan obviously being one of them, but that's just because we were talking about him earlier and his last name is Shanahan. It's easy to know how he ended up getting his entry level position in the NFL. And this is just the the question about a pool of candidates, which is if you hire people who think, act and talk like you, those people are going to end up rising through the ranks. And eventually it might take like Brian Dayball going to like eight jobs in 13 years, but eventually you'll end up getting a chance as an NFL head coach. But I can also say that I saw Kyle Shanahan coach and I want people to think, act and talk like him because thinking, acting and talking like him has gotten me to a Super Bowl, has gotten me to both playoff appearances. Sean McVay obviously takes a lot from Kyle Shanahan. Matt LaFleur obviously takes a lot from Kyle Shanahan. Those guys are very successful. Don't I want people that think like Kyle Shanahan? When I say think, talk and act like that, what I'm referring to there is straight, white, cisgender, often Christian men. And Kyle Shanahan's been very good at He's been one of the good coaches in this where he hires Robert Sala, who ends up becoming the first Muslim head coach in the NFL. Obviously, we've talked about Mike McDaniel, who's going to end up being a head coach, if not this cycle, the next year or the year after that, who's biracial, which you mentioned the Deadspin article. And I wanted to laugh at that because it's a really funny mess up. The problem is Clay Travis made it not funny because when Clay Travis is using it to argue his point, I all of a sudden feel like, oh, I don't want to be laughing at the same thing Clay Travis is laughing at. But it is really funny that Deadspin thought that uh, Mike McDaniel was white and making their argument about, look at this other white coach. It's like that lady in that podcast who went out. I don't remember who the person was, but said he had white privilege, but it was a black dude on radio. Yeah, exactly. But there are examples like this all the time that are funny if they aren't getting co-opted by people on the right. And that is unfortunately why I can't laugh at that article the way it's like, ha ha ha, look at you Deadspin, because then I sound like Clay Travis. Um, The thing with Shanahan, and Shanahan's one example of this, I know one of the interesting parts of the lawsuit is the Denver Broncos situation, because the Denver Broncos had the interview where it's alleged that John Elway was drunk. And I'm saying alleged on this one because the Broncos came out pretty adamant in their denial that, you know, it's not like a blanket statement by the NFL that says, uh, I believe the NFL statement on Flores is like, these are these claims are without merit when the NFL has been talking about how they need to improve the Rooney rule for years. But there there is merit. But anyways, the point to that is the Broncos story of John Elway showing up drunk to Brian Flores's interview and then hiring Vic Fangio. While he's the guy who you could argue in the last 10 years is one of like three teams that has actually genuinely 
employed a non-white coach in not one of these sham jobs like Steve Wilkes being paid to lose for the Cardinals for one year or Cully being paid to lose one year for the Texans or Hugh Jackson, who might be the ally that Brian Flores is looking for on this lawsuit. The point to that is he's the one who hired Vance Joseph. And like that team was a legitimately great defense. Yes, their offense was struggling, but the problem ended up being Vance Joseph is a shitty coach. That's what ended up being the problem with that one. And then John Elway is also the guy who's benefited from the structural white power system in the in pro football, not just as a player, as a general manager, and now the de facto owner and president of the the Denver Broncos. He's benefited from that system as well, and also been the guy who hired George Patton after he stepped away from general manager, then hired Vic Fangio, then hired Nathaniel Hackett. So this is where things kind of go back and forth is that it's important to hire not just people as leadership positions who aren't straight white men, often religiously Christian and also cisgender, but it's also important to hire people who are below those people who will then assume the ranks in the near future, which is the thing that's happened with the general manager pools in the last few years where you have Brad Holmes becoming the general manager of the Lions. Why? Because he was second in command with the Rams. Chicago Bears hire Ryan Poles. Why? Because he was second in command with the Kansas City Chiefs. Jobs that would traditionally be held by white people are now going to non-white, still men. I mean, there are no women in these positions of power yet, which is another step the NFL should improve on. But at least a step is instead of white men, you're hiring black men. The same thing happened with the Cleveland Browns. Andrew Barry was hired as a black general manager, hired a black uh, assistant general manager, and now he's running the Minnesota Vikings. This is how you start to achieve progress is just white people not hiring other white people and being willing to hire people who don't think, act, look like them and have a similar type of mindset. And that's how you start to create progress without having to kick owners out. Hopefully we're not hiring people just simply because they're minorities. Like how do we draw that line? Uh, when white people stop acting like white people, that's when the line kind of starts to draw there. Cause this is kind of an infinite thing, right? Like we're so far in the stone ages right now that we will probably never get to a point where we can say we have achieved some level of equality because the bar can always be moved. For example, there are no Asian men or Asian women in positions of power in the NFL. We obviously have Kim Ang running things for the Miami Marlins behind Derek Jeter as like a second in command as the first female general manager in baseball. But you don't have any women in positions of power in the NFL. You don't have any Asian men or Latinx. Latinx? Latino. Latino. It goes both ways. It depends whether I'm talking to white people or not. You don't have Latino or Latina men and women in positions of power in the NFL. This is the same step up that we have every time we talk about Becky Hammond, which is, look, Becky Hammond is going to be the first female head coach in the NBA. And that's the burden she's been carrying for five years. And then she goes to the WNBA and everyone's like, oh, that's unfortunate. The point that goes to is who's going to be the second female coach? Who's going to be the third? Who's going to be the fourth? Who's going to be the fifth? That's the conversation that moves the needle forward. So I think it's when people are willing to say that the only people qualified for these positions are men. And when only white men are ending up getting these entry-level positions that then end up leading to them rising in industries that a lot of people want to get into. But because sports teams are in such high demand for such few jobs, you can end up filtering out a lot of candidates for people that you want to work with. And that's ultimately just a point of white power because this exists in industries other than football as well. It's just, again, football is easy for us to talk about.
out because we understand the language a little bit better. But isn't the end game to win? Isn't the end game to generate revenue and wins generally generate revenue? So if I'm hiring Mm -hmm. someone and I'm hiring them exclusively based off their race and limiting it to a pool of just white people, regardless of qualifications, am I not by virtue doing my own organization a disservice? Yes, that's the funny part about all of this is that racism makes organizations actively worse. That's the funny part about all of this, because in the end, the thing that is most important for ownership groups and people in positions of power is control. The thing that is most important for people in positions of power more than anything else. And we talk about this in the football context a lot where we're like, is the job of a general manager to win a championship or is the job of the general manager to keep their job? This is a conversation we have all the time about what is your first priority. And so this is something that you can ask the same of people with even higher positions of power, specifically billionaires who run football teams is the first objective is to maintain power and maintain order. That's the thing that's most important for anyone in a position of power. Should it be that way? Ideally, no. But it's totally understandable. If you have power, you don't want to give up that power because having power is awesome. I'm not sure if in the same situation, I wouldn't make the same decisions. So that's the part that's ironic about this is that if you hire more diverse people and those diverse people are opening up to a larger pool of candidates and you're doing your due diligence in the hiring process, you're going to get more qualified candidates. And this is the thing that is fascinating about all of this is that racism and discrimination does active harm to organizations. It makes them less efficient, but people in power are concerned with maintaining that level of power in the first place. It's kind of reminds me of, remember when in the mid 2000s, there was that cake shop that wouldn't sell to gay couples? That's kind of poor capitalism, right? If you're limiting the amount of people that you can sell to, then that's just bad capitalism, which in virtue hurts your business, actively hurts your business. That's essentially what would happen here. So being racist really doesn't serve to benefit anyone. It doesn't serve to benefit the owner. It doesn't serve to benefit the players, the coaches, or the candidates that are in fact getting hired. You could have a one and done Ben McAdoo type season, or I don't know, who's another kind of nothing coach that got hired? Adam Gase is the perfect example people talk about. Adam Gase, Pat Shermer, someone like that. Yeah, but Adam Gase is the one people point to of, he did the exact same thing Brian Flores did, and he got a second job without having to wait a year with the Miami Dolphins and then with the New York Jets. Now, it turned out Adam Gase was a bad coach, but But the point still is there. At least Adam Gase got a second chance. And as I've talked about a couple times on Take It Easy, like in the last 40 years of the NFL, the only non-white head coaches, and we can name all the coaches who got two chances. John Fox got like three chances as a head coach. The ones who have gotten a second chance are Dennis Green, who again, Dennis Green had to have massive success as a head coach with the Vikings in order to get a second job with the Cardinals. Tony Dungy, Hall of Fame coach. So Tony Dungy got a second chance because he was a Hall of Fame good coach. And Mike Tomlin, Hall of Fame coach, and Ron Rivera, who when Ron Rivera took the job with the Panthers, they had the number one pick that year. They went two and 14 the year before Ron Rivera got there. He only gets a second job because he got Cam Newton with the first draft pick he had in his draft class. But here's where it gets sticky. And this is why I'm kind of surprised at the timing of the lawsuit more than anything. I thought Brian Flores was going to get a second job. Brian Flores still might get a second job. The Texans said Brian Flores was a finalist for one of his one of their head coaching positions. Doesn't it hurt him if he takes the position, though? I know that it's sticky territory. Anytime you have an active lawsuit, it's similar to what was going on with Antonio Brown, where his lawyer probably told him he shouldn't sign with another team after the Bucks released him because his 
whole argument was, well, I have a messed up ankle. Wouldn't it be similar for Brian Flores to take a job actively coming after the hiring processes of NFL teams? I'm just trying to think like a lawyer here. From the lawyer, there are two points to this. There's the side of the ownership of the NFL and the lawyers filing for Brian Flores. From the lawyer standpoint, it doesn't really matter if Brian Flores gets another job as a coordinator, as a head coach coming up here soon. He won't because of the active lawsuit, but he's still going to be included in this mix. And the reason he won't is because NFL owners don't like it when you give them negative publicity in the middle of their Super Bowl week. They want to be vindictive because they have $70 billion in infinite resources. They're going to essentially blackball or we're anticipating they're going to essentially blackball Brian Flores the way they blackballed Colin Kaepernick from the sport. Maybe it happens. Maybe it doesn't. I think that there are teams that are in really interesting positions to hire Brian Flores because if I were in a position of an owner, someone who doesn't think, act, or talk like a normal white man, uh, I would look at it and say the fact that that person had the courage to stand up and push against the push against the white power structure is incredibly courageous, and that's a person I would want leading my team. Maybe not as an ex's nose coach, but make him a defensive coordinator for the time being. If you're the Steelers, I would hire Brian Flores now. They're in a really interesting position with the only white billionaire who doesn't act like a white billionaire in their ownership position with the Rooney family. It would be really interesting to see what they did there as allies to progress, shall we say, to the best they can be in the the best allies you can find in the room. So that part is the owners might make an ultimatum that Brian Flores is not allowed back in the NFL, the same way they're going to make an ultimatum to John Gruden, that John Gruden's not allowed back in the NFL. The, the part with the lawyer that it doesn't mess with the situation also is this is a class action lawsuit. This is not Brian Flores specifically suing the NFL. This is on behalf of the class, which they're going to establish as black head coaching candidates, black general manager candidates in the NFL. They're suing on behalf of the class. And so they have 40, 50 years of data they can pull from, if not this one specific example of Brian Flores. They're hoping that other people's stories will come to light that will also shed information on how the NFL is discriminated against them. So if Flores gets a job, he still has the case from his time in Miami. He still has the sham interview from the New York Giants. Obviously, Hugh Jackson tweeted yesterday that the offer from the Browns was pretty good. Um, So maybe he'll have some stories there. Marvin Lewis talked about how he had a sham interview. So they have more evidence that they can present in the lawsuit anyways, even if Flores gets a job. Can I just say this? And I respect Hugh Jackson. Obviously, he did me a favor by coming on this podcast. If he really was getting paid for losses, dude must have been cleaning house. 31 losses there. I mean, talk about taking money to the bank. Yeah, everyone was also joking that Stephen Ross came in cheap with having 100000 a loss when David Culley just got paid $22 million for one season. He got paid more than Bill yeah. Belichick for one season as head coach. They're saying that they came in a little cheap on having him get that job. So yeah, the internet was making those jokes there. Hugh Jackson also is the perfect yeah. candidate for this because he's not going to coach in the NFL ever again. Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds will not be getting inducted into the 2022 Hall of Fame class as we only have one Hall of Fame inductee this year, Big Poppy, David Ortiz. And as much as I would love to say that I am happy for David Ortiz, it just left me in a bummer mood because it's so hypocritical. I hate this current system that we have with the Hall of Fame voting. And yes, I have a personal horse in the race when it comes to Barry Bonds, but being a fan of the game, just I saw Barry Bonds play. I saw David Ortiz play. David Ortiz 
Ortiz was phenomenal, but the stats even back it up that he was half the player that Barry Bonds was. As great of a hitter as he was, he was a designated hitter. He didn't play the field. Barry Bonds had eight gold gloves, seven MVPs, three times as many wins above replacement as David Ortiz. Three times. I can make an argument he's three times the player that David Ortiz is. And it sucks that I almost have to make it that David Ortiz got picked over Barry Bonds, but seeing the one for one, seeing them in the same Hall of Fame ballot and Barry Bonds trailing at 66% while David Ortiz on the first ballot gets 76%, I think is a crying shame. And that's kind of what I mean about being a Debbie Downer from the get-go here. Well, no one I think is arguing that Barry Bonds' career stats are worse than David Ortiz. Like we know the reason why Barry Bonds was didn't get into the Hall of Fame is because there were about a hundred or so baseball writers that said, not on my watch for letting him in. But that's the hypocrisy I'm talking about here because David Ortiz and Barry Bonds have just as many failed PED tests in their career. I know that there's some speculation as to how David Ortiz's positive result got out there. But the fact is he did test positive back in the early 2000s and Sports Illustrated and another publication just happened to get their hands on the positive negative test. There was 100 players in the early 2000s to test positive. David Ortiz was one of them. And Barry Bonds, his positive tests didn't even come out until it's met legislation. And this is the interesting part about this whole conversation, because think about this from my age. I was six years old when Barry Bonds broke the home run record. It's I remember watching it, but it was one of my earliest sports memories was watching Barry Bonds hit that home run in Giants Park against Washington. And that's the only memory I have of Barry Bonds as a baseball player. My entire context of Barry Bonds is shaped by every damn January. We have the same meaningless conversation about whether or not Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Sammy Sosa and Alex Rodriguez belong in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. The answer is yes. There is only one correct answer to this, and it's yes. It's people on their high horses with a moral authority keeping certain people out while Pudge Rodriguez gets in the Hall of Fame. And Jose Canseco wrote in his book that he personally injected Pudge with steroids. And so this is a whole hypocrisy conversation. You are absolutely right about it. You are speaking my language. It is just so bewildering. And I just wish we could blow up the whole system. I I don't know how we petition to get that done because shouldn't the Hall of Fame be for the fans? Shouldn't it be for the fans to immortalize these eight class players like Barry Bonds, like David Ortiz, like even Pudge Rodriguez? I just hate that it has like someone else's moral compass is the reason these guys aren't getting in because I I saw a perfect tweet that basically encapsulates it. David Ortiz, great guy. Barry Bonds, kind of an asshole. Alex Rodriguez, kind of an asshole. Sammy Sosa, kind of an asshole. And those guys aren't in the Hall of Fame, but David Ortiz, because he was a more likable guy, he gets in. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I, I just need to hear someone try and explain a good argument why you can feel comfortable voting in David Ortiz or Pudge Rodriguez, but you're uncomfortable voting in Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds. That that's the thing that I would just love for someone to explain to me and explain it to me like I'm five. Simple it down, dumb down language, and I would very much appreciate it. But the fact that we're not getting really any answers, and I've seen a few people that have BBWAA votes come out and say this is crazy. I can't believe this. Some of my other fellow baseball writers got it wrong, but I don't see anyone commenting below the reason why. 
So those guys are just staying silent. They're the silent majority here that are preventing players that deserve being there and players that deserve being there before the speculation of steroids because Barry Bonds had over 400 home runs before the year 2000 when he was first linked to steroids. 400 home runs, at least even 10 years ago, was good enough to get you in the Hall of Fame. Not to mention the Gold Gloves, the Silver Slugger Awards, the MVPs. The baseball writers didn't have any problem giving Barry Bonds seven MVPs. They didn't have any problem selling papers in the late 90s when Sammy Sosa and McGuire were going at it head to head. But now when the bill is due, when it's time to pay up on all that work, all that ink, they're just left with a check that they can't sign. So here's the best piece of context that I can give you. And it's not great because this is a story that requires two hours of research and in-depth analysis to try and explain. But here's the best kind of explanation I can give for you. The Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens situation, they're two specific cases because they retired at the same time. But this includes... Sammy Sosa as well, Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez. There are people who had lesser stats than Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens who are not even getting close to the Hall of Fame. The case for Bonds and Clemens was just that Barry Bonds is undisputed the greatest baseball player ever statistically and by awards and all the things we measure. And Roger Clemens is the greatest pitcher in the history of baseball. And those two guys have the steroid connection. So they embodied a whole generation of steroid guys, whether it be Alex Rodriguez, Sammy Sosa, said Manny Ramirez, et cetera, down the line, who didn't even get close to getting in the Hall of Fame. When all of this first began, when Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens were coming up for the Hall of Fame the very first time, the very first run they had, writers in baseball were all in unison that we were not going to let steroid people into the Hall of Fame. I believe Barry Bonds got somewhere around 30% of the vote his first time around. Roger Clemens was somewhere in the same range. It was unified that we were going to stand on a moral authority and, by the way, was extremely popular at the time because we weren't removed from the steroid era yet. The Balco investigation had happened like three years before. The Senate hearing was less than a decade old. A year after all of this began, you would have the, um, I forgot what the name of the South Florida clinic was, but uh, if you watch the documentary Screwball, it does a really good story telling this, but I remember the guy's name is Tony Bosch. I just can't remember what the name of the clinic is, but the clinic ends up leaking the names of all the people who are going to this clinic and you have Everest Cabrera, Manny Ramirez, Alex Rodriguez, all their names come out. And by the way, in 2013, Alex Rodriguez got the largest suspension in the history of baseball over a PED suspension connected to biogenesis. That's what it was. The biogenesis clinic. Biogenesis happened while Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Sammy Sosa were first on the ballot. So all of this was still relevant. And that's now a decade ago. It's been a decade removed from the last gasp of steroids because steroids were done in baseball by this point. By 2008, 2006, it was being phased out of the culture of baseball. Baseball wasn't like the Tour de France where everyone was using it the way it was in the 90s and 2000s. It had been phased out. The people who got caught in biogenesis were people who were holdovers from the previous regime. And baseball started implementing a testing procedure and all of that stuff. And so those guys ended up getting busted. And now eight years later, we realized that we didn't ever really care. Like we got outraged and got on our high horses about steroids, but 
but we didn't actually care about players using steroids. And for good reason. There's no reason that use of steroids and getting caught should prevent you from being a Hall of Famer when that's not exactly how steroids work. Steroids are not magic juice that automatically makes you a great player. That's not how steroids work. It just improves things like recovery time. Doctors give out steroids two players in order to recover. Remember Andy Pettit? Andy Pettit got busted for steroids and cried at a press conference saying he was using it to help recover his bad back. Steroids are a great recovery method when they're not banned by the leagues themselves because they don't have a legislation tactic and because public relations says people want the illusion of a clean sport. People want the illusion that this is a merit-based game where players all are on the same playing field and they end up having success. It's why baseball was forced Once public opinion shifted on it, they were forced to attack the steroids thing. But in the 90s, everyone knew. I mean, I wasn't alive for it, but from what I've seen in documentaries and people talk about it, everyone knew Barry Bonds was on steroids. Why? Look at him. Look at how he went from the Pirates to the Giants. Everyone knew Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa during the home run chase were probably on steroids. And baseball turned a blind eye because they were like, well, this is great for the game. Why would we want to bust this? Baseball's never been more popular coming out of the strike. Why would we want to stop this? And only once public opinion shifted and the Senate got involved and people thought that they were supposed to be outraged about steroids, did baseball pivot on this and say, as retribution, we're going to punish these handful of players from getting into the Hall of Fame. The reason that it took 10 years is because once the precedent was set, enough writers were willing to say, we're going to stick to the precedent that was set because in a time and place in 2012 and 2013, we were still very moral about the whole steroids thing. When we didn't need to be, it was just public opinion had shifted on steroids from don't tell, don't speak to this is an outrage of the highest proportion because Lance Armstrong lied during a Senate hearing and got everyone pissed off about steroids. And so that's why those guys don't get into the Hall of Fame on this ballot once it gets turned over to the Veterans Committee. Unless the Veterans Committee is also holding this begrudging stance from 2012, then those players will get into the Hall of Fame. My thing is also, where do you just draw the line? Because the line is ever shifting. Obviously, again, I hate to keep focusing on David Ortiz being in this, but David Ortiz first ballot gets in. Didn't even have to wait a year. If At the very least, if you're going to keep that moral stance, make him wait. You made Barry Bonds wait. You made Clemens wait. You're probably going to make A-Rod wait. Make David Ortiz wait. I know that it would be a punishment towards David Ortiz, but you punish the other guys, at least keep that same energy. And for other cheating scandals, because we also have Hall of Famers that have cheated in other ways that are currently Pete in the Rose. Hall of Fame. Yeah. Oh. Well, well, Pete Rose, different. Well, oof, Pete Rose yeah. is not even in the Hall of Fame. I was thinking yeah. more about um, Gaylord Perry it was that threw the pattern in spitball. We have guys mm-hmm. that were constantly stealing signs. We're going to once again have this discussion probably in 10 years when the Astros guys are up for the Hall of Fame. There was guys taking amphetamines, which is a banned substance now, but wasn't in the 70s. And whether they benefited from the performance boost of taking the amphetamines or not, that's a very subjective standard, but they're in the Hall of Fame. You could say there's a subjective standard for steroid use even because Marwin Bird, 
I remember he took steroids or got popped for steroids and the guy was ass. I think he hit under 200 in the year he got busted for steroids. <laughs> oh gosh. There's a fun player on the nineties Cleveland teams who I'm not going to remember his name because I don't know nineties baseball, but basically he hit his career high in home runs was like 12. And then his contract year, he hit 45 and then never hit more than 12 again. There's one guy like that. That's somewhere in there. And there's going to be other guys. There's going to be other outliers to just slip through the cracks and have these one-off seasons. But with guys like Barry, with guys like Clemens, it's so obvious that they have the talent of a Hall of Famer. Because again, Barry, over 400 home runs before the year 2000. And then he does take steroids and he's hitting 70 plus bombs. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know, look at this. The splash hits record at AT AT&T Park, Oracle Field, whatever you want to call it. I think it's up to 80 some home runs hit into the bay. 70 of them are Barry Bonds. (laughs) 70. Out of 80. And that that ballpark's been around for 20 years now. There's some undisputable talent between these guys that just set them apart. Clemens, to be able to dominate for multiple decades, it's not easy to do, especially when everyone else is juicing, right? You have all these other guys, all these talented hitters. I don't know if the hitters or the pitchers benefit more from when they take the juice, but the hitters, they're hitting 40 plus home runs a year. And this guy is still keeping an ERA in the low twos. Credit to him, even when he was off the juice. He was still blowing that thing by hitters. Just a shame. It's frustrating. And like you said, now there's no use getting mad over it because it's out of the voters' hands. It's just onto the Veterans Committee. If it gets past the Veterans Committee, I don't know what baseball fans should do because baseball fans have also been saying the same thing about Pete Rose, trying to get petitions for Pete Rose for years. And obviously we haven't gotten any traction on him getting in. It probably won't until Rob Manfred's out because I believe Rob Manfred made a promise to Bud Selig that he wasn't going to let Pete Rose in. Yes, there is is an interesting case around this where um, Pete Rose baseball is waiting for Pete Rose to die because all of the hypocrisies are out there. Like baseball is taking money from bet MGM as a corporate sponsor for major league baseball. All the hypocrisies are there. It's just Bud Selig was uh, willing to die on the mantle of, I will not let Pete Rose in the hall of fame. And part of Rob Manfred's condition of commissionership was don't let Pete Rose into the hall of fame. So Bud Selig's going to have to die before Pete Rose for Pete Rose to have a chance of getting into the hall of fame. The, the, point to all of this that you brought up that I wanted to circle back to that I find really fascinating is the case study of the Houston Astros, because we're going to see the the classic case of history. If you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat yourself. That's what it is. The exact same thing is going to happen with the Houston Astros, where people are going to get on their high horse about the cheaters, and they're going to try and deny people from the Hall of Fame. When I have said from the very beginning, when the punishments were first handed down, it was January of 2020. It was the day of of the national championship in college football between LSU and Clemson. I remember this very fondly from the day they said Lunau gone, Hinch gone, but players get the immunity. This was all about public relations. It was baseball fans were outraged by the idea that a championship may have been swung by sign stealing when I'm not outraged at all that the Astros stole signs. This is now baseball having no enforcement mechanism for it. They exploited a loophole that baseball had no mechanism to enforce. Therefore, sign stealing should evolve to a point where baseball is using headsets like they do in football 
ball to communicate between a pitcher and uh, uh, someone on the bench. Like that's the way that it should ultimately evolve in the sport is that it shouldn't be you just try and punish the people who get caught. It should be you try to take an active approach to try and change the rules there. But I mean, it was more popular to be outraged at the Houston Astros for cheating. They did cheat. And some people, not everyone, are going to try and prevent Jose Altuve from getting in the Hall of Fame or hold it against Justin Verlander, but Justin Verlander is going to get in easily. Or, you know, Carlos Beltran's eligible next year. Are they going to hold this against Carlos Beltran when he gets to the Hall of Fame? It's going to be the exact same thing again, making the exact same mistakes that we all, I mean, not all agree, but most people agree now. It's really dumb that we're leaving steroid users out of the Hall of Fame. If you want to be like concise about it, say they have to wait 15 years instead of five years if you were caught with steroids as a way to delay the Hall of Fame thing. Yes. Objective standards. I need some objectivity in this. I almost want stuff that takes it out of these guys' hands, that takes it out of the writers' hands, even takes it out of fans' hands. If we just had more objective standards for what gets you into the Hall of Fame versus what gets you out, if we're going to say if you're caught in any cheating scandal, then you're not allowed to be in, then fine. At least that's something. But we just can't have these areas of gray that keep being exposed yearly or when we just look back at the history of baseball. Well, even the cheating scandal rule is super subjective because again, the entire crux of the Houston Astros cheating scandal was everyone got outraged by the idea that the Astros stole signs in the playoffs. If that story had been out there before Jeff Passan and Ken Rosenthal picked it up, that story had been out there for six months nobody cared. That Astros cheating scandal story, I read the I read the book by Andy Martino on this idea, was that Ken Rosenthal wrote the story in, in November of 2019 and baseball opened an investigation. That story was reported in January of 2019 and nobody cared that the Astros had cheated. It was only when Mike Fires was willing to put his name on it that people actually started caring about this issue. This is all a moral authority thing and it should not be held against any of those players at all because we don't actually care. This reminds me of the spider tack thing too last year. The fact that everyone got outraged and was baseball changed this, baseball fixed this, baseball changed and fixed it, and then everyone was still angry. I, I think this is probably just a self-hating baseball fan thing. I think that's <laughs> what it really comes down to, if we're being honest. I think this is America just, as a whole. I think self-hatred is America's national pastime now. <laughs> baseball just basically needs some drama. And I guess this is the best thing we have from baseball. We haven't talked baseball in three months because baseball's on a lockout currently. And this is the introduction back to talking baseball headlines that we needed. Also, the thing that's interesting is it's very easy to do. Is he a cheater or is he not a cheater? It's very easy to have an opinion on that. It's much harder to have my old man voice. (laughs) You cheater, you damn kids. (laughs) With your spider tech and your steroids. When I was young, we took the greenies. We had a bowl of greenies in the locker room and we (laughs) took them and had my whiskey and my my cigars. I saw Babe Ruth play across the street. I was playing stickball with the kids in the street. You should have seen me. I was gonna I was gonna make a long elaborate point about the interworkings of labor politics and unionization standards, but I think you're 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 that was a better cap on this podcast. Nothing I <laughs> nothing I can say. Nothing I can say about uh interwoven dynamics of union and management politics in America uh, would be better than you doing old man impersonation of a guy ripping Why a heater before. Why don't you take those commie unions and keep them out of my stickball? <laughs> See, 
I can't top that. I no no amount of deep nuanced conversation. And you know what? America agrees. This is a perfect point right here. What do people care more about? Deep conversation about the workings of uh, labor unions and the decline of unions in America over the past 50 years? Or do they want to hear a guy do an impersonation of a guy ripping a heater before playing baseball in the 1940s after coming back from World War II? Where's my big chief tobacco? <laughs> then an American spirit. He needs an American spirit too. I can do I can do old timey broadcaster for that. We welcome you to the 1951 World Series between the New York Giants and the Boston Red Sox. I don't think the Boston Red Sox were good back then, but welcome to the 1951 World Series with no lockouts. Why? Because there were no unions. Players had no rights. They had to go work as plumbers. There were no unions. No unions allowed. We are pro-management here in the 1950s. A bunch of pansies. <laughs> See, that's better than talking about what's better talking about the lockout for 10 minutes or that that that's much better content. I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, I really loved your announcer voice. I really loved it. I would say the Red Sox had their moments. They just never won the World Series. They had their moments when they were good in the 50s, 60s. I think Ted Williams had some great years for yeah. them, obviously. How uh, about the, I could do the shot heard round the world? How about the shot heard round the world? Uh, the New it. York Giants versus the, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, this is a great one to call because 1961, the shot heard round the world. The greatest hit in the history of baseball, which by the way, the guy cheated doing it because he had a a telescope in the outfield that told him exactly what the pitch was going to be. The greatest hit in the history of baseball. Also a cheating scandal. People don't talk about it. They celebrate the greatest hit in the history of baseball. No, that was the cheating scandal of their time. Nobody gives a shit about it because we don't actually care about moral authorities in sports. The Houston Astros should all make the Hall of Fame as one of the great dynasties in the history of Major League Baseball. Five years, five consecutive American League championships, a World Series victory, two World Series appearances within five years. Yes, the Houston Astros Astros, one of the great dynasties ever, and I don't give a shit if they cheated or not. Congratulations to the 2018 world champion, no, 2017 world champion, Houston Astros. Back in my day, we had the telescopes. And we didn't have any of these fancy drones. They're going to have drones one day. That's going to happen, right? Eventually, eventually drones will be so small, like military drones will be so small that they can like circle right above the mound and be able to see it. That'd be a great one. But this is again, this is why we need the, we, we need the wristwatches. We need the headsets. So pitchers, pitchers don't communicate with catchers, put a headset in the catcher's head, put a headset in the pitcher's head. And then if you want to change the pitch, then you use the hand signals, but put headsets in both and let like the NFL, let a coach call the plays and you can change the pitches down below. Now, will that make the game slightly longer? Yes. And that's not what baseball wants, but better than just trying to punish the cheaters and ignoring the problem. If you ask me, it's just those pansies like to paint the fingernails when they put down the old one too. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, let's cap that statement. That, that, that's over. I'm over it. We'll just worry about it in 20 years when the Veterans Committee gets to it. Let's talk about some other stuff. You, you also mentioned that you were wondering what my shocking announcement or the grand return is. Yeah. I think I know what that one is. <laughs> Let's just jump real quick into some NBA headlines. Let's talk about the grand return I'm talking about. Anthony Davis, street clothes, is officially back on the court, out there for a win over the Brooklyn Nets last night. And he was okay, 20 minutes. I think I saw he had eight points late in the fourth quarter. Not exactly ideal from a guy that you'd want to be your Robin to your Batman of LeBron. Not impressed with Anthony Davis, even when he has played this season. And you're not impressed with Anthony Davis or the Lakers right now because this is the first Powell rankings update where you have the Lakers outside of your top 10. Does this mean that you have officially given up on the Lakers as a championship contender? Oh, no. The, oh, as a championship. Oh, that's a that's a good question. That's one that I've had trouble pondering over 
the past few weeks is the Lakers as a championship contender. The Lakers, when healthy, are still maybe the second best team in the Western Conference, but uh, this is not a popular opinion to have right now because even when the Lakers have been healthy, it hasn't exactly worked. They're going to have to retool the roster this offseason. They're not good enough to to beat the Warriors. They're not good. They might be good enough to beat the Suns if the Suns lose a player to injury. But the reason they're 12 right now is because this is the one chance you're going to have to do it because the Lakers get Anthony Davis and LeBron back and they'll maybe catch the Mavericks. They'll maybe catch the Nuggets. They're a better team than the Nuggets at this point. This was just a week where I was like, eh, why not? Mavericks did really well. Nuggets did really well. Memphis has had like four straight weeks of winning basketball. So shout out to Memphis. I don't know what to do right? with them at this point. Can we talk about the Memphis Grizzlies a little bit? I, I know we started off talking about the Lakers, but I got to give yeah. some love to Memphis because I really want to see Jaw at the end of this month. I was looking at games in the nearby Texas area and Jaw's coming to San Antonio here in about 30 days. I'm, I'm bookmarking that one. I got to see this young man play because John Morant is becoming one of the most exciting players in basketball. He's getting it done offensively. He's getting it done defensively. I think he brings a mentality to the Grizzlies, the old grit and grind Grizzlies. He's brought that mentality. It's kind of similar to Joe Burrow and what he brings to the Bengals. That's why I feel like Jaw brings to the Grizzlies. Memphis is following the classic arc of an NBA team that drafted a generational star. Because usually when you draft a generational star, your team's really bad. Sometimes you have the worst record in the league and you get the first pick. In the case of Memphis, if I remember correctly, I think that year Memphis had the fourth worst record in the league and then they happened to get number two in the lottery. I might be wrong a little bit, but they jumped a little bit in the lottery that year. So they weren't starting from we are one of the worst teams in the NBA when they got John Morant, but they follow the classic arc of teams that draft a generational talent, which is first year we made it to the play in game. We lost the play in game to the Blazers, but we were the ninth best team in the West because we have this young generational rookie of the year star. The next year we got to the play in game again relatively same team, but this time we won the play-in game. We beat the Golden State Warriors, uh, and then we got a first-round series, and we got smacked by the Utah Jazz, who didn't have Mike Conley. So we got to a playoff series. This year, maybe we'll win a couple games in a playoff series. We'll go to six, seven games against uh, Phoenix Suns or against uh, Dallas Mavericks. Actually, that'd be a great first round. Series. I kind of want to watch Memphis play Dallas now in the first round. You know, we'll get to that point, but we'll probably lose the series. We're still, you know, we're not as good as Phoenix. We're not as good as Golden State. Luka is probably better than John ja Morant, just purely from a talent standpoint, but Memphis may have better depth. You know, Luka's a little more developed. Luka's better player, so maybe they'll lose that series, but they'll get they'll be competitive in a playoff series. And then they'll add a player who's a better two than Dylan Brooks, or they'll trade Jaron Jackson to get a player better than Jaron Jackson who wants to play with John ja Moran or they'll sign someone in free agency and then they'll take a step and win a playoff series and maybe they'll win another playoff series and maybe in three years the Memphis Grizzlies will be one of the best teams in the Western Conference. They are following a classic arc of success for teams that draft a generational talent which John ja Morant is definitely that. He's not as good as Luka. I mean I think Zion's a better player but Zion hasn't really been on the court at this point. Yeah, John ja Morant's wanna... right there in that generation with Trey Young. I want to ask you a question on that. If you had to bet all your money today, who's going to have the better rest of their career from this point forward? Is it going to be Ja or is it going to be Zion? If Zion Williamson plays Zion Williamson, if Zion Williamson has chronic injuries, that changes the math. But if you can give me fully healthy Zion Williamson who has surgery and 
you know, he's recovered in his knees. He's not overweight because we don't know whether he's overweight or not. Uh, Zion Williamson started in the all-star game at 20 years old. So Zion Williamson is that dude. Like Zion Williamson can do all of the John Morant things and also be 280 pounds. This generation looks like it's going to be the Luca Zion generation, the way that the generation right before is the Giannis generation. And then there's other great players like Jokic, MVP, might win two MVPs this year. Anthony Davis, Joel Embiid, amazing, great players of their era. Devin Booker, great player in this era, but they're not as good as Giannis. And that's because Giannis is six foot 11 and can Euro step from the three point line and dunk basketballs. Like there's no shame in not being as good as Giannis. So Zion, if you can guarantee me health, is better than John Morant. It's not by much. Like this generation looks like, I mean, again, they're very young, so we're not 100% sure, but it looks like Luca and Zion will be competing for championships through the back half of the 2020s. Trey Young will maybe win an MVP. John Morant will maybe win an MVP. LaMelo's going to be very good, like perennial all-star. That kind of looks like what this generation is shaping up to be. It's a little early for a lot of that stuff because, you know, anything can happen here. Evan Mobley looks awesome. He could be a perennial all-star. Jalen Green is awesome for the Houston Rockets, but I don't think any of those guys are as good as the players we're talking about here. And honestly, sooner or later, it's going to start a new generation. Once, Once this generation starts having actual success, we'll start a new one with Imani Bates or Mikey Williams or whoever else is coming up through the high school ranks who we'll find out later. So I would say a long way to answer your question, Zion, but it's not by much. It's like asking uh, Jokic versus Anthony Davis. It's like both are very, very good. One might be better than the other. And it's hard to decide which one is which because sometimes it'll look like jaw and sometimes it'll look like Zion. But uh, if you promise me health, I'll go Zion. That's just the podcaster instinct the ability to kind of extend a simple question into a longer question. And that's why you're as good as you are. Flowers to Kyle Ledbetter here. Kyle, though, you do have the Nets at three. That is a big change in your rankings because you finally pushed them up to the number one spot after trailing against the Warriors, after trailing against the Suns. They were finally number one in your last rankings update. Now they're three again. This, I assume, is strictly tied to the injury of Kevin Durant. But Kevin Durant's going to be out for another four to six weeks. How far can the Nets fall if it's one and a half James Harden? (laughs) As much as uh, you just complimented me for my nuanced takes and being able to draw out things and put things in perspective of a larger conversation. And one of the things I always try to do with podcasts is say things that are not obvious. That's something I really try and focus on is if I can't say something that's not the obvious thing, I don't want to talk about it on my podcast. Take it easy, which you can check out everywhere you get podcasts. Uh, And I try to bring that same energy here to the Slump Buster podcast. I say this to say, yeah, it's just because Kevin Durant got hurt and uh, they will probably not fall any farther than three because the only team that could probably move ahead of them is Milwaukee and Milwaukee's been all right recently. They lost to Orlando a couple weeks ago. That was a weird one. But yeah, they'll probably be three. It's just because Kevin Durant got hurt. That's the only reason. Not even the Heat or the Bulls if they really struggle while Harden's in. Just the only uh, one standing. Not the Bulls, but Miami. I give Miami props. Miami could definitely do some damage because Miami's this weird team that breaks the rules of convention in the NBA because they're one of the few teams that you, in a sport where Frank Vogel's about to get fired because, you know, coaches are 
totally disposable in the NBA. Doc Rivers gets fired by the Clippers after one, you know, another bad playoff loss and all of that. In a sport where coaches are totally disposable and it's so centric on their stars, the Heat are one of the few teams you can point to and say their front office gives them an advantage because they've been doing it for so long and they've been developing players well for so long that they have a knowledge base that reminds me of like, I mean, not going to say exactly Belichick in the NBA, but they have a wagon of sorts. They're great at developing players and they're doing it smarter than everyone else. Tyler Hero was the 13th pick in the draft. They had a concerted plan for Tyler Hero. They developed him into a very, very good player. Bam Adebayo, 14th pick in the draft. They just drafted him because he has a ridiculously great skill set. The debate in the draft was, is he a true four? Is he a true five? They said, whatever you want to play best, whatever you think you play best, you do that, Bam Adebayo. If you're going to play five, bulk up. If you're going to play four, we're cool with it. We'll put the ball in your hands sometimes. You'll run the offense. Duncan Robinson, undrafted guy. They turned him into baby Clay Thompson, as people like to call him. And then they happened to get Jimmy Butler, a very good player, but not someone anyone regards as anything more than a perennial all-star. Jimmy Butler, very good, but not a great player by any stretch of the imagination. So Eric Spolstra, Andy Ellisberg, Pat Riley, that brain trust for the Heat, they give me some vibes that they can give that team an advantage that we're not looking at on the court. Because I look at that team normally, I'm like, if Jimmy Butler's your best player, as great as your next four best players are, which Miami's next four best players are really good. Like having Jimmy, Bam, Kyle Lowry, and Tyler Hero, very few teams can say they have four of the best 50 players in the NBA on their team. You know, the teams at the top winning championships are the only other teams that can really say that. The fact that they have that is good, but I think they'll ultimately come up short because of that. But I'm not, I mean, two years ago, they made it through the bubble and got to the finals. And by beating the Milwaukee Bucks, I still think the Bucks would have came back and that series if Giannis hadn't gotten hurt at the beginning of game three when they were down 0-2. But even still, Miami has more of a chance than Chicago. That's what I will say. Miami has more of a chance of being that weird team than Chicago does. They would need either Kevin Durant or Giannis to remain injured to beat them in a seven-game series. But I do think that the Miami Heat are a weird exception